Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Sets of Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today we're talking with Francis Chan. Francis is the founding pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Simi Valley, California, and he's spoken at numerous conferences around the world. He and his family started a house church movement called We Are Church in San Francisco, and Francis has written several best-selling books, including Crazy Love, Forgotten God, and his latest is Until Unity. But before we talk to Francis, we want to remind you that if you are enjoying our interviews, leave us a review. Now let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Dean of the Talbot School of Theology. Well, good, good, good. So today's going to be, I think, a fascinating conversation because uh, this is something I'm deeply passionate about. We're actually, you and I plan together and host together the Church Planning Leadership Fellowship, where we bring together the leaders of about 70 different denominations to talk about advancing church planning. Uh, Daniel, of course, leads the Church Multiplication Institute. This, you know, at Talbot, we we have, uh, you know, dozens of different denominations represented. So we kind of work and care about this space. But also, uh, when I, we look looking through Francis' book, it's, it's very, very biblically driven, very passionate about the topic. And yet at the same time, I'm like trying to figure out how we accomplish some of the things that Jesus calls us to and the scriptures teach. So I think it's going to be a good conversation today. So if you're enjoying our interviews, as always, leave a review wherever you download. Your podcast helps people, other people to find it as well. Okay, so jumping in with Francis Chan. Uh, super glad to have the conversation. You dedicate until unity, quote, to the followers of Jesus from various denominations who have forgiven me for my arrogance and divisiveness over the years, unquote. Great, fascinating beginning of this. So tell us, why did you write the book and how does it relate to your personal journey? Wow. Um, I think I wrote, well, I know I wrote the book because I, um, because I was so convicted by some of these scriptures that I just list out at the very beginning of the book. I was, uh, you know, my seminary training was very, gosh, what's the word to use? Um, like, like we have it right and everyone else has it wrong. Like everyone else has it wrong. And there was a very, uh, there was just a spirit of ridicule of these other denominations and people who believe differently than we did. And so I was very much in that group of people that I, I, I felt sick to my stomach when someone would come to my church and told me they spoke in tongues. I, I would just think, oh, I don't want this person here. How do I get rid of them? How do I kindly, you know, without causing too much, um, I don't know, division, which is ridiculous. Uh, how do I kindly ask them to leave? I mean, it's it's to that extreme. Uh, I saw it as satanic or, or demonic. Um, so some of these things that are... Uh, some of the finer points of theology, some of the the things that have been up for debate for centuries, I took a very strong stand on. And as I read, read the scriptures, um, the more I studied, the more I just felt like, ooh, I have said some terrible things about people that I now consider brothers or sisters. And so I've had to apologize to them to their faces. And, uh, and, and it's also, as I got to know some of them, I realized, wow, I was told something about you that, that really isn't true. Um, you may have made a statement 
that was off that you now regret, or you may have believed something you no longer believe, or maybe they've even convinced me that they love the scriptures. They just interpret this passage differently. They, they come to a different conclusion than I have, but it's not a salvific issue. It's not a foundational issue. And so maybe I just care too much about things that, um, that I don't know that I can be so certain on. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like a pattern for a lot of ministers is in their younger years, they're very dogmatic about certain things, and they begin to work more broadly, and then it changes their perspective. And what do you think, uh, Francis, like from the perspective of believers, those who are training to be in ministry, like how important is unity to understand the importance of unity from the get-go? What are your thoughts around that? I, I think it's huge. Um I think a lot of times, you know, we, we all go to different uh, schools, seminaries. I mean, you're the president of one now. And I'm not president. Are you president? What are you well, it's, I, I'm the dean, but since it's a okay. seminary as well, it's the, the, I do get inaugurated in different ways. But anyway, it's, it's a weird thing because it's multifaceted. Okay. But go ahead. Okay, so you're, you're a weird thing at a uh, but, seminary. But dean, dean is what we use, Talbot School of Theology. Okay, you're, you're, you're a dean there. And so... In some ways, I don't know how it works there, but with different denominations, you're you're teaching students how to. Uh, oh gosh, I, I don't want to misspeak. I, let's just say at some seminaries, um, you're teaching a specific theology based upon your denomination um, or what, whatever you are, and and you're teaching how to defend your view from these other views. Meanwhile, professors in other seminaries are doing the same thing. And so you're, you're kind of learning uh, the uniqueness of your denomination and how to defend that view against others. And so while this is going on, it, it's even if you do say, hey, let's keep in mind unity, how you teach what you teach uh, the level of humility really matters and can cause people graduating from a seminary to feel like, wow, we are the ones that have it right. And it's our God-given duty to go show other people why they're wrong. And so, I don't know. I don't know how you strike that balance of teaching your convictions and your best interpretation of Scripture and yet emphasize equally, if not even more so, uh, the need to be unified based upon the biblical command. Yeah, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't say, I don't know how, because I was hoping by the end of this, we'd have all this solved. You know, because like like at, at Talbot, you know, we're an evangelical school, so we have people who mm-hmm. baptize babies and people who baptize believers. We have people who mm-hmm. believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent from conversion. We have people who who, who don't. So, I, but I think the challenge is a lot of is is what are those areas of disagreement where we kind of say we agree to disagree and still be in unity, and then what are not those areas where this is like no this is this is wrong enough that I can't say that this is in the realm of acceptability, whereas you know I might disagree with my Presbyterian friends on baptism, but I don't think they're not my brothers and sisters in Christ because of that distinction. But so so how do how do we know how do we how do we place weight on some of these issues and then I want to come back to because I mean the book is so driven by biblical texts 
I want to come back to that. But but do you have any, um, you know, I mean, because you've wrestled with some of these things. How do you, what weight do you place on different issues and how do you decide? Gosh, I, you know, I, I look at scripture and there are sin issues where the Bible is clearly saying, I mean, not only do you, you don't even associate with people that are in those sin issues, um, that ongoing sin in their lives, and yet call themselves brothers. And so there are times, it, it, at the same time, it talks about those who are divisive and you warn them, you warn them again, and you have nothing to do with them. So there are, there are clear, there, there are just times when scripture says, here's the place, here's where you disassociate. Um, you have in second John, those who deny that Christ came in the flesh, okay, disassociate with. So there's, there's a few very clear passages in scripture um, where it's, it's time to uh, disassociate with someone and, and say, look, we're, we're not united on this. Um, but to go beyond what's clearly written in scripture and to say, well, also this one, this one, I'm not ready to do that. I think sometimes we're, we're, we're taking too much liberty and saying, yeah, but this is associated with this and this and this. So therefore, let's disassociate with this person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a hard question, Francis, because I, yeah. I want you to take us through the process. You know, when Rob Bell released the book Love Wins, mm. and that was yep. uh, around the issue of hell and, and, and those kinds of things, you released a book kind of to counteract that yeah. maybe, and maybe not specifically to counteract Rob Bell, but you were bringing some corrective things that you thought the church was perhaps maybe subscribing to something that was not doctrinal and not orthodox. And so what mm-hmm. made it about that particular issue that you thought, man, I need, I need to speak up on this um, because yeah. it seems like you saw something. No, that's good. Um, yeah, there was something that seemed very dangerous to me. It was a type of thinking in that book that says, well, I wouldn't do this, so therefore... Um, God wouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a sense in which there was a lot of human logic and reasoning. And, uh, and I just, it's it's so rare for me to feel like I am the guy to attack this issue. But I, I tell and it was really weird. I, you write crazy love, you write forgotten God. And now the next book is about hell. Um, but it was very dangerous to me because it was attacking a part, a very real part of God's person, that he is a God of wrath. And uh, so I needed to write about that. Now, you, you need to understand that I contacted Rob before I wrote the book, um, and I wanted to talk through and make sure I understood what he was saying and not saying. Um, told him my concerns. His comment was, I don't resonate with that, but I welcome a continuing of the discussion. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were kind of those guys that were speaking at all those, you know, kind of youth specialties and, uh, you know, conferences back in the day. And so our names were kind of put together. And I, I felt a need to show that we don't agree in this area. In fact, I'm very concerned about it. Okay, and I think that's one of the key questions, is at what point do we draw those lines? Now, you, in this case, you wanted to 
rightly defend God's character, his holiness, uh, and ultimately mm-hmm. how wrath flows from that. So that's a that's a theological line. So, um, and I, I want to press in a little more on a couple of those questions, but one of the things that you really do, the book is very rich in scripture. By the way, let me remind everyone who's listening to that the book is called Until Unity. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think it's worth you, you engaging. And again, we're going to talk about it here some, but there's some there's several arguments that are little that are going to be a lot deeper than we could just go through in a sort conversation. It even starts with it's what the Trinity wants, uh, it's what you want, it's what the world needs. You know, these are the chapter titles. So obviously, when we look to the pages of Scripture, there's a very clear call to unity, and the church was actually pretty divided in its earliest expressions. I mean, there were issues that you've already mentioned a few of mm-hmm. them. So talk us about some of the scriptures that help frame your concern for unity. I know you, you, you use the words of Jesus multiple times, but others as well. Talk about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think everyone goes to uh, John 17 first, which to me is an amazing passage. Uh, I believe the unity spoken of there primarily is about this fascination of a unity with God himself, a oneness with him. I mean, uh, you know, in seminary we're taught like there's different genres as you read the scriptures. You need to know what you're reading. You know, is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it, you know, is there imagery involved or is it an epistle? Is it... You know, to me, John 17 is almost its own category mm-hmm. because I'm going, wow, we're listening in to a conversation from this, from Jesus. A member of the Trinity is speaking to another member of the Trinity. What does he say to him? I mean, it's a whole chapter's worth. And this is right before his death. And so it's not just a cute little, hey, let's all get a long passage. It is the Son of God speaking to the Father at the end of his earthly life. And we get to listen in on this conversation. And he's saying, okay, Father, the time's come. You, you know, and, and now he's saying, God, you, you know how you and I are one? I want them all to be perfectly one. Just yes. You know, he's just explained, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's a unity we don't understand. It, it, it's something we're, we just don't get. It's like, wow, what is that? And now it seems like he's inviting us into that. And his prayer is not just for those who were his disciples at the time. He makes it very clear. I'm praying for all of those who will believe in them through this message. They would become perfectly one. To me, I go, this is fascinating, but I'm always looking for what does God emphasize in Scripture? What does he say over and over, and what does he express emphatically, like to, to such a degree? And so I look at John 17 as one of those passages. I, I look at Ephesians, uh, the whole book of Ephesians about how his death was to create this oneness uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles, to, to create one new man. And that's really where the title comes from, is when he, he tells the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, he goes, look, I want you to build up the body of Christ until we attain to this unity of the faith. Um, so it's it's... It's even our job as ministers 
to work towards this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I know everyone's looking for the answers, the exact cutoff point, like, sure. okay, so when do you do this, this, or this? But my point was just for those of us who claim to be, you know, in love with the scriptures, uh, can we just admit that the scriptures speak a lot about unity and speak very strongly about this so that we can get rid of this idea that, okay, that's a cute little sub point, um, almost like it's a, it's for those of us who are shallow uh, mm-hmm. that just want to talk about love rather right. than doctrine. I'm going, no, this is at the core of our doctrine is a Father, Son, Holy Spirit who are three in one. And so, of course, unity matters very much to him. Yeah, and I think it's, it's you know, I read those texts and the texts that you highlight in the book. And, and part of me completely rejoices in them, but I, I end up applying them congregationally rather than cross-denominationally because that's easier for me. That's how yes. we say, well, you know, then our church should be unified. But you make a bigger case for that. And I think that's why people kind of ask about the boundaries, you know, the examples. Yeah. You know, and again, you, you know, part of my own personal journey, your journey started, you know, you kind of shared a little bit about your theological journey. You were trained at Master's College, Master's Seminary, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and 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 theologically been on a journey. For me, I came to Christ in the charismatic movement of the Episcopal Church. Yeah. I was discipled in an Assemblies of God church as a teenager, in Southern mm-hmm. Baptist churches. And so, you know, so I see, I kind of come at this from a more evangelically, evangelical mm-hmm. ecumenist approach. You know, I have actually written an article that I'm an evangelical ecumenist, but the word evangelical shapes some of that. So, so, so then we look to the New Testament. In the book, you talk some and make the case about remarkable unity. I mean, we, we see in the New Testament, there were lines that were drawn, but then what does it look like for the next few centuries after that? And why does that matter for us today? Help, help me understand that, that question. Sorry. No uh, worries, no worries. So, so we do flow from, uh, from some, we see some division in the, in the scriptures because people are called, uh-huh. people are anathematized. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but then you make the case that the church yeah. is more united in the subsequent centuries, early church fathers, things of that yeah. sort. So unpack that yeah. a little bit for us. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems from my best understanding, like that first thousand years, um, not that there was no disunity, but this, there was one church. Um, and, I guess when you grow up with so many denominations and so much division, you just assume that it's always been that way. But there was one church, and there may have been disagreements in there, but it seems like they submitted to this council of leaders, um, and <clears throat> and it wasn't until those... Uh, those bishops, and this is the best I understand, you know, in 1054, you've got the Bishop of Rome who suddenly wants to change the Nicene Creed. I say suddenly, but he, he, he changes it. And, uh, and the rest of the bishops are like, wait, you can't unilaterally do that. And I understand there was other water, there was water under the bridge. There were other things that were happening at that time that led to that. And maybe even just the geographic um, separation. But that really became the point when, okay, we're going to separate now. There's an Eastern church and there's a Western church, and which becomes the Eastern Orthodox church and then the Roman Catholic church in the West. 
Uh, and I, I know I'm oversimplifying some things, but I just, well, like I know church, church historians right now are like throwing things at the screen. However, okay. this okay. is a, you know, it's not that long of a podcast to unpack all of the yes, current yes, yes. place for, for, for millennia, but keep going. Yeah, I just know I was reading through some church history books, and when it came to that point, there was like this, oh, man, that's the end. It's the beginning yeah, the great, the great of schism. The it's end. called the Great Schism for a reason. Yes. It's a great schism. So yeah. It is. And so now suddenly you're not welcome to take communion with me. I can't take communion with you. The very thing that was supposed to bring us to one table is now the very thing that divides us. And then you have the Anglican Church that springs up, and then Reformation, and now denominations everywhere. So obviously, there's a lot left out of that. Francis, I want to bring it back to the personal, and I think this would be helpful to pastors and church leaders listening uh, as they're sorting through when they should speak out on something, when they should be okay with uh, being okay to disagree. Uh, so going back, you know, you, you spoke out against uh, uh, love wins and because you were concerned. There's something that you had discerned there. And then there are times where you've you've been okay. You you grew. Maybe you mentioned earlier, like there were people that would come to your church that spoke in tongues, and you were a bit iffy. And then fast forward, you know, fifteen years later, you're you're speaking with Mike Bickle, and so you became okay with sharing stages with people that theologically were different from you. Like, how do you yeah. discern when you speak against something, and how do you discern when it's okay to disagree about something for the sake of unity? Oh, that's a great question. Um, that's why I, that's I why think... we have Daniel here. He asks only great <laughs> questions. <laughs> gosh, I have the I, looks I, of Francis Chan and the brains of Ed Stetson. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! That is <laughs> wow. That's like the perfect combo. He's like, oh wow. I don't know how to respond to that at multiple levels. I think I, I'm not sure that'll make the final edit. We'll see. Uh, oh, but go ahead. Gosh. So, how do you decide? Oh, well, like I said earlier, um, and, and understand that in. In writing uh, my book, Erasing Hell, uh, I'm not making a hard, fast rule uh, or saying at that time even uh, that Rob Bell is not a believer, um, that he's not saved, uh, that he's not a Christian. Um, and I wasn't even attacking a specific person at that time. I was just writing some you know, another side to a theological issue. I, I think it's fine to speak up on these things, uh, on, on really any issue. Uh, it, it's the, the spirit in which we do it. I, I think the Ephesians 4, when it talks with, you know, that we do with all humility and gentleness, um, there's, you know, because it's in the context of trying to preserve some sort of unity, now, there may be some things that uh, an individual can say later on that I would go, okay, now I'm in my best understanding. Gosh, he's crossed a line that, that goes against Orthodox uh, Christianity. Um, and so I, I don't think it's wrong to talk about some of these issues. I, I think the spirit, the, the arrogance, uh, the lack of gentleness, lack of humility with which we talk about some of these things, that's concerning because the world is looking on and going, God, this is Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I, I think we can get so fired up about some of these things and uh, we lose our love for people. Uh, we lose our humility. Um, and that's, that's more what I'm writing against. 
I, I want those who are speaking so strongly about things not to uh, no longer care about the scriptures or doctrinal mm-hmm. purity. Uh, I just want you to take a look at yourself and realize that there's actually very educated people on some of the other sides of some of these issues, and they are not foundational. And so maybe tone it down a bit um, and maybe maybe not just tone down your volume, but increase your love for those individuals who could be brothers and sisters. And we need to be careful of that. I mean, if the Holy Spirit of God is inside of a human being, which is fascinating, then how do I treat that person? And if that truly is a child of Almighty God, doesn't that create some fear in me to uh, just just walk a, with a little bit of caution or a lot of it? And I actually really appreciated the call to, you know, in a sense, winsome engagement with Christians who may have different views. Um, and, and again, the book is Until Unity, and I do want to encourage people to pick it up. I think it will challenge you, and it'll make you think through some issues. You you didn't give easy answers. I almost wanted a list of what is a, these are things that are agree to disagree, these are things that are outside of orthodoxy, these things are outside of Christianity. Um, so so it, 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 that's, why I think, why people have questions. And one of the questions is, and I, for me, is what's the basis of this unity? Because I think of the unity as... We're members of the body of Christ, so we're that's part of the unity. But is it is it Eucharistic unity? Is it doctrinal unity? Is it organizational unity? You know, I I actually attended a part of my master's in divinity. I went to a Catholic seminary and I took the history of the Reformation. And they have a very different view of what went down there. And so, you know, so so how does that connect? I mean, they, you know, organizational unity would be a Catholic thing, you know, extra ecclesium nulla salis, there's no salvation outside the church. Doctrinal unity. People would say, well, if we agree the same things, we can be united. The Anglicans would say, well, we take the common Eucharist, and and that brings us together. So, what's the basis of that unity that we should strive for? Does that does that make sense? It does. It does. And uh, oh gosh, um, let me just let me shut my heart on this. Please, I have I have met people who. They absolutely believe in justification by, by grace through faith. Uh, they, they just go, look, the cross is everything. What he did on that cross is everything to me. It is all to the praise of his glorious grace. They love the word of God and see it as authoritative. Um, and they hate sin because the Holy Spirit is them. So I see the fruit of the spirit and you know when the we're in my in our bible reading we're reading through uh, first peter right now as a church and and it talks about uh being filled with this or rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory you know i was reading that the other morning like though we don't see him we love him and though we don't see him now we believe in him and we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And there are those who are praising his glorious grace for what he did on the cross, and they're beside themselves. Like they don't even know how to express it. Like it's just this joy that's in them, this over the love of God, the love of Christ. And 
And when I meet people like that, that just, they just ooze like this uh, inexpressible joy, this peace beyond comprehension, this understanding of God's grace that has led them to, to so much love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's, it's infectious. There's like this immediate uh, embracing of one another. And these are not people from one denomination. They are from different denominations. And I, I guess one of the arguments I'm trying to make in the book is, is it all doctrinal? Is it all about the way we do something? Or is it, or is there this clear command to love and, and does it kind of flow somewhat naturally to people who, I, I would I use that term, you get it. You really get the love of Christ. Like, like Paul prays for the Ephesians. I want you to know the love of Christ that is beyond comprehension. So it's not just, you know, I espouse to these doctrines, right. but I actually know the love of Christ. And when I meet someone else who knows the love of Christ and shares that passion, like they know it, not just they can recite it, but there's like this knowledge. Like to me, that's more of the issue is the it's not that this unity is because there's so many denominations out there. Um, I really believe a lot of this, this, this unity is I don't meet many people that seem like they are truly filled with the spirit like right. a person who would be drunk with alcohol. So it's, it's when your witness that. kind of bears witness with their spirit, you know, kind of their yeah. spirit with their spirit kind of. So basis of that would be in some ways personal. I remember Leith Anderson, uh, we were talking, I interviewed him for a book I'm working on, on the future of evangelicalism. And he said, I could just go in and sometimes I meet with Christian leaders from other traditions. I could just tell that we relate to one another when they have, uh, I think he used the term been born again or have new life in Christ or whatever it may be. So there's a sense that you want to bear witness to the spirit of genuine believers in other faith traditions. Am I saying that rightly? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, but that's not, that's not without lines. Right. Uh, that's, you know, as we talk about the, the death of Christ, the atonement, as we talk about the scriptures, there's this life that makes it easier to go, okay, let's have conversation about this because we disagree on this point. But here we are both shocked that we are one with a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light, and we are one with him. And we're going, how are we before his throne? Not just before his throne, but on his throne with him. Like, this is fascinating. And as we talk about that, okay, but we disagree about the Eucharist. Let's talk about this because you're denying something uh, that is very dear to me. You're saying, I can't take of that with you. Help me understand this. Um, I guess it's a lot easier to have these conversations with those who you see as uh, humble, you know, uh, reasonable, and, um, and have a deep love for Christ and awe over this oneness that we share with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I love the oneness in Christ that draws us in that body. When you were talking earlier, you said uh, that believe in justification by faith, but of course you didn't say justification by faith alone. So if we yeah. go from the Great Schism, and then we fast forward yeah. to 1517 to the Protestant Reformation, 
you know, the solas come here. And so one of them is justification by faith alone. Mm. Is mm-hmm. and so our Roman Catholic friends wouldn't hold that. Just yeah. just so everyone who's not as familiar, uh, Catholics do believe salvation is by grace. And and mm-hmm. I sometimes people you know it's you, you should Google that, call, read through that, but not by grace alone, which then becomes a marker of the Protestant Reformation. I'm a pretty big mm-hmm. Protestant, um, yeah. so talk to us a little bit about that. Is that a therefore a dividing line, a barrier mm-hmm, for you, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and talk to me about that because that because the, the Catholic yeah, Catholic friends big. become the issue here. Yeah. Now we we use this term Catholic, and sometimes we use it as though every Catholic agrees or every Catholic even knows what they believe or they are supposed to believe. Um, now, right, but, the, but there is to, a, but there's a doctrine laid down in councils that would include that salvation is not by grace alone. That's specifically anathematized. So that's what I yeah. would say. There is certainly a doctrine of beliefs, sacred scripture, sacred tradition. So, but sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, when I talk to individuals, uh, you know, and that's kind of I believe the world we live in now right. is right. not so. Hey, every Catholic believes this, but sure. I'm talking to individuals, and uh, I. I've met many Catholics who believe in justification by grace through faith alone. Sure, for sure. Um, and, and so for me to not have unity with them, and then I've had others who say, look, our understanding of even that more Roman Catholic doctrine is very similar to what James says. You know, does that faith save you? And semantically, they're, they're saying, what we're saying is that if you really believe in justification by grace alone, there will still be these actions that follow that is proof of your salvation, um, which is very similar to what I was taught in seminary. Sure. Um, and, and so, again, what we're dealing with is, okay, so for, for you and I to look at the scriptures, we may have disagreements because we're interpreting scriptures now. Now you have this catechism, and now there's almost an interpretation of the catechism. And, uh, it, you know, where it's like, well, what does he really mean by that? My understanding by what he meant by that is such and such and such. And I feel like we're seeing more and more of that in the Catholic Church. And that's where it gets confusing to me. And that's where even, you know, that like this Catholic group asked me to come and preach the gospel to them. Sure. And I'm going, okay, well, here's my understanding of the gospel. Is that really what you want me to preach to your people? And they say, absolutely. So many of our people have not heard the gospel. Would you preach the gospel? So when I'm invited to something like that, I do it. Now, of course, I know I'm going to get slammed sure. uh, for even walking in that room. But these are souls they're asking for an explanation of justification by grace through faith. And so I'm going to go do it. Uh, And I am trying to talk to each individual and try to understand what they believe um, because I care about their eternal destiny. Let me give you a, a, a scenario that I think is relevant to most uh, pastors and local church leaders. You know, you're in a community. Uh, yeah. You're probably, let's say you're a pastor of a Baptist church. There's a Wesleyan church. There's a Reformed church. There's a Catholic church there. And uh, there's a 
a, a desire to be a witness of Jesus. I'm using kind of more mm. broad language, be a witness of Jesus yeah. to the community. And at what point do you think as a local church pastor, do you begin to define a line where you don't part, like what kinds of ministry you don't partner with? Mm-hmm. Um, you still care for them. You still cheer them on, but you, you're like, I don't think we're going to do that like, with like you. Like the ministerial association or collaborative things? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Or yeah. some kind of outreach or yeah. signing a statement together for the community. Like where, can you give some guidance? I know you can't create a Gosh. line for people, but. Yeah, because yeah. that's what pastors and church leaders would would want because they, they get these questions about, you know, the local ministerial alliance and. Yep. You know, and can we plant churches yeah. together? I mean, you know, I probably can't plant church together with Presbyterians because it works great until the first baptism, and then you don't know if you need a cup or a tub. So it's kind of tricky to figure out what's the what's those. So where do those lines get drawn for you? Mm-hmm. Or how would you encourage <laughs> church leaders to draw those lines? Yeah, and uh, I'm one person. I, I, you know, for me, when I read the scriptures, I see a emphasis on holiness. Um, so some of these sin issues, when it comes to sexuality, gender, I'm just going, gosh, I, everything in my spirit just screams out. I can't, I, I don't even know how to do it. I don't know what to do. I mean, a, again, I, I've excommunicated people, you know, the elders of our church have over leaving your wife for unbiblical reasons. And so then that person will go to the church down the street and then I'll, I'll go talk to the pastor down the street. And I was like, well, we don't judge people like that. And, and I was like, well, we're called to judge those inside the church. And, and I, I, I don't have an answer for that one. I don't, I don't know that I'm given license to say you are no longer a brother. I disassociate with you as a pastor because you are not confronting that sin. Um, I don't have an answer. Uh, it's okay not to have an answer. I think it's, it's just tricky for, for, you know, because it's an interview, we could, you know, I mean, I got opinions on what is and what's not, and there are sort of yeah. levels that you can cooperate yeah. together, like on evangelism. You can cooperate with evangelism with everybody who shares a common view of salvation, uh, receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, being born again, you know, uh, the the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But then people yeah. who have a different view of salvation, how, how do you cooperate on evangelism? Cooperate in church planning, you have to have a more similar ecclesiology. Cooperate in yeah. prayer, you might have a little broader. And I think probably mm-hmm. your... Not probably your your boundaries are broader than my boundaries, but I got to tell you, mm. Ed Stetzer has. I mean, I, people are mad at me all the time because of the. Yeah. I mean, this summer I spoke to thousands of Pentecostals in in Amsterdam, and I'm speaking to the Egli Amish, the defenseless Mennonites, now called the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, in the same month. So mm. I I I do draw broad boundaries, but there are boundaries. I hear you saying there are boundaries too. They're just, I think, broader than most evangelicals have historically been comfortable with for organizations, but you're a speaker. You're not leading an organization. So if you're not leading an organization, it's a little bit, it's a little harder when you have to say, I'm Presbyterian, should we partner with the Pentecostals? That's where it gets trickier, I yeah. think. Yeah, so, definitely. So yeah, what, and I, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I want to hear more. Go ahead. No, I, I, I don't have the answers to some of these things. Okay. Um, I'm just, well, then why'd you, if you don't have the answers, why'd you write a book about it? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what the commands are and I think people are not taking these commands seriously. Oh, no, I think that's now, the answer I wanted to hear. Cause I think you really lay out that we need to take this more seriously. And I, and I left the book thinking he's right. We need to take this more seriously, but I was, but I also want to know where the lines, your lines are different than mine. How do we draw them? Because, because ultimately in the history of the church, 
over and over again, people have pursued unity. And when you pursue unity, you tend to, I mean, the, the ecumenical movement from 1910 forward, from Edinburgh to today, I think everyone yeah. would say it's been a disaster. So how do we not repeat the mistakes where now you have people mm -hmm. like in the ecumenical movement, these people deny the divinity of Christ, but we're in Eucharistic unity with them. These people have changed their view on sexuality, but we're in organizational unity with them. So how do we do this and not repeat the errors of those who've gone before us? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Any insights? I mean, again, I, I hear that we've got to work towards unity, but, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I am looking at these passages and I am staring at them and meditating on them and going, God, I want this. I don't have the answers to some of these. Please make this happen because this is the desire of your heart. Um, with every situation, I am praying, going, God, what do I do in this specific situation? I'll do anything. Uh, I, you know, uh, so I, I check my heart. Do I love this person? I mean, if they're an unbeliever, that doesn't uh, tell me I, I, I don't need to love them. Um, but, you know, with a true believer, I need to love them as Christ loved the church. I mean, it's an extreme oneness that he wants me to have with this person. So I'm praying through God, if this truly is a brother and, and, and a fellow minister, and yet he sees this as not sinful, and I see it as clearly sinful, um, gosh, he's not in the sin, but he's allowing the sin. Uh, Come tell me, help me, Holy Spirit, you're here to guide me, guide me in this. I, I want people to see this struggle that I am fighting for holiness, I'm fighting for, for doctrinal purity, um, and yet I'm fighting for unity, and it's just not that easy. I, I want us all to be in that desperate cry to God saying, I know you want oneness, but I don't know what to do in this situation. Please, I, I believe the Holy Spirit is to guide us in this. And show me a scripture I don't understand. I mean, this is something I've been praying the last few months. God, I've been wrong in the past. I've been deceived in the past. Please show me where I am deceived today. Uh, I don't want to know later. I want to know now. And God has answered that prayer, and he's He's, it's been beautiful uh, the way he's opened the scriptures and shown me things in my soul that are still workspace, that are still done out of insecurity or whatever else. And so this is life. Um, and I would encourage everyone to pray that prayer because by very definition, we don't know where we are deceived. The enemy is a deceiver. And you can't say, no, I, I know where I'm deceived. That's that's just an illogical statement. Uh, you're praying to God and you're just saying, God, show me, show me where I'm off. I, I don't want to be lacking love towards people that I am supposed to embrace deeply. And I don't want to say anything or accept anything about you that is not true. Um, but it seems like the Apostle Paul gives some room, uh, even with things such as the Sabbath which seem pretty sacred to me. Um, he's saying, well, one person sees it this way, one person sees it that way. And it's like, well, you're an apostle. Give the answer. You know, <laughs> kind of like what people are doing with the podcast. Come on, 
you know, yes, give yes. the answer, right? <laughs> and and Paul is fighting for this love, and and it's it's not as as clean cut as some people make it. Yeah, I want you to know that. Uh, yeah, I have pressed on some things partly because you know I think a lot of we, your journey is really important in this conversation. You know, my journey probably is as well. You know, my 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 parents eventually converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, and today my stepfather's mm. an Eastern Orthodox priest. Um, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic, nominally Roman Catholic. Um, you know, so I I get the complexity. I also just struggle with I, I want to I, and struggle. I think that's a key mm. thing your book helps us to do is to struggle with the texts that call us towards unity, and I also think that we have to struggle with the historical tendency to de-emphasize some key things in the pursuit of unity. And, I, and I, even in this interview, you've indicated that as well. So I know, um, you know, I, I know people want, and, I, and, I, and I've written, I, I mean, I've had to say, this is where I think some lines are between the two. People can Google my name, and I actually written mm -hmm. some articles about how we can and can't cooperate on church planning in certain ways and things yeah. of that sort. But I just want to say, I really appreciate the passion you have put forth here for unity. Uh, just, would you mind just kind of encouraging the pastors and church leaders, that's our audience, just give them a brief word of exhortation about how they can and should seek to pursue unity with sisters and brothers in Christ. I, I would, two thoughts come to my mind off the top of my head and maybe three by the time I'm done. But uh, number one is humility. Um, gosh, I mean, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is his example. This is what he calls us to. He will oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. And so just to humbly come before God and to pray that prayer that I talked about earlier, God, tell me where I'm deceived. I don't want to be wrong. Um, just it's, it's, it's admitting as a human being, your reasoning or maybe some of the things that you were taught could be off. And uh, it's that desire for truth that I believe requires humility um, secondly, I would say to pray for love. Uh, I don't, I don't naturally wake up loving people, um, like I should. Uh, I don't, you know, even on this podcast, do I, have I really loved you? I, I've tried, you know, because oftentimes we just get into business and start talking stuff and I go, okay. Uh, you know, Ed, I've known you for, you know, years, just kind of loosely have been uh, uh, associated with different things. But do I care about you? Do I love you? Um, is, is, is that even there? It's, it's not the most natural thing. I have to pray even now as I'm speaking. God, help me. Help me love him like Christ loved the church. That's, that's tough. Um, and I would just encourage you to go, okay, yeah, those of you who are listening, you disagree with me on some things that I've said. I'm sure you do. I'm sure we all disagree on things. So does that excuse you from this huge, central uh, biblical command, New Testament command to love me as Christ loved the church? Um, we have to fight for that and pray for that and ask the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. And so I'm just saying, keep studying the Word of God. I mean, this has to be central in our discussions. But in that, would you pray for that humility and love um, so that we can have meaningful conversations, 
reasonable conversations um, while we're both standing in the presence of God and in unity with him. Uh, let's just realize here's this holy God on his throne that I think we all agree his thoughts are just light years beyond ours. And now we're before him in his presence. There ought to be a humility as we discuss with one another and an embracing of this command that came from that throne to love each other deeply because that's his example. Okay, now let's do those things humbly with deep love and let's have conversation. Uh, That's all I'm asking us to do. Amen. You've been listening to Francis Chan. Be sure to check out his new book, Until Unity. You can learn more about his ministry at crazylove.org. And thanks again for listening to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.